Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Every year, millions of Christians the world over celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ by following the example first set by the angels and singing. We sing songs, we sing hymns, and of course we sing carols. And one of the most famous of these Christmas carols is Joseph Moore's Silent Night. Originally composed in 1816 and now translated into more than 300 languages, it is perhaps the most popular and recognizable of all the Christmas songs. For over 200 years, it has been performed annually and publicly in town squares, school auditoriums, churches, cathedrals, and even once on the battlefield by the contending sides during World War I. It has become a cherished staple of the holiday season, and many people would say that no Christmas celebration is complete without it. But you know, every time we sing the words of that old carol, as we will do here at St. Philip's in less than a week, we are doing much more than simply engaging in a warm and homely tradition. We are actually declaring one of the great truths and mysteries of the Christian faith, namely our belief that the Savior of the world was born of a virgin. The first stanza of that carol, you know it so well, goes like this. Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round yon virgin mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. Yes, every time we sing those words, we are declaring our belief in the doctrine of the virgin birth, or more properly, the doctrine of the virginal conception. The idea that Jesus Christ was conceived not by normal or natural means, but by a supernatural act of God the Holy Spirit. It's one of the most important and yet one of the most neglected doctrines in the entire Christian canon. If you think about it, we just don't hear much about the virgin birth these days, do we? We stand and profess our belief in it every Sunday when we say the creed, but beyond that we say and hear very little. In fact, it's generally only at this time of the year that we even talk about the virgin birth, and even then, it's only in passing. Now, yes, we talk about the circumstances leading up to the Lord's birth. We talk about the census that was ordered by Caesar Augustus, for example, that led Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. And we talk about the deplorable conditions into which the Lord was born, the abject poverty of the manger. But what about the supernatural aspects of his birth? The idea that Jesus was conceived by the third person of the Trinity and born of the substance of the Virgin Mary, his mother. Well, let's face it, we hardly ever hear a message about that. We hardly ever hear a Christmas Eve sermon about that. And why? Why is this such a neglected doctrine, given the fact that today's gospel lesson makes it very clear that it's an important part of the story? Well, I suppose any number of answers might be given. One answer that might be given is that the New Testament itself doesn't talk all that widely about the virgin birth. It's only found in two of the four Gospels, Matthew and Luke, and beyond that, the New Testament hardly says anything else about it. 
And then, of course, there's the whole issue of unbelief. You and I live in a very skeptical culture. And many people today are reluctant to believe in such things as miraculous virgin births. But honestly, I think the main reason why this is such a neglected doctrine today is because most people, at least on the surface, have a hard time understanding what difference it really makes for their life. They have a hard time understanding what Jesus, being born of a virgin, has to do with them. It may be true, it may be a miracle of God, but the real question is, what difference does it make for me? Well, this morning, I want us to return to this great doctrine of the virgin birth. And I want to suggest to you a number of reasons why it does have practical value for your life and mine. And why we need to hold fast to the church's teaching on this subject and why we need to glory in the mystery. So for starters, let me suggest to you that the doctrine of the virgin birth is important for your life and for mine because in a world that is filled with sorrow and disappointment and frustration, the virgin birth reminds us that with God, all things are possible. I mentioned a moment ago that you and I live in a very skeptical age. And what I mean by that is that you and I live in a materialist age. We are living in an age in which many people have been taught that this universe is a closed system. And they have an a priori commitment to naturalism. They believe that this world is all there is. Carl Sagan who was the host of the popular television series Cosmos back in the 1980s, used to end every episode of that series with these words, the cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Now, as you all know, Carl Sagan was a scientist, but let me tell you something, that was not a scientific statement. That was a philosophical statement. That was a worldview statement. Sagan assumed that the cosmos is all there is. Well, Christianity offers a different worldview. Christianity suggests to us that no, this world is not all there is. The universe is not a closed system. There is, in fact, something, someone out there beyond what we can see. And that someone is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. Moreover, Christianity holds that the Creator God is deeply concerned for His creation, and He has acted on our behalf for our salvation in history, and that nothing, nothing whatsoever can thwart His plans or His purposes. And the virgin birth is a powerful testimony to this claim. You know, I love the simplicity and the honesty with which the Gospels of Matthew and Luke tell the story of Jesus' birth. We sometimes get into our mind that those who lived a long time ago, those who lived in the distant past in the first century, people like Mary and Joseph, were somehow very ignorant people. That they were gullible, that they were willing to believe in everything, fairies down the well and that sort of thing. But that's not the impression you get when you read through these biblical accounts. 
Just think about Mary for a moment. She has this encounter with the angel who tells her that she is going to conceive a child supernaturally. And what was her response? Her response is exactly the response that we would give if we were in her situation. She said, how? How can this be? For I am still a virgin. Mary may have lived a long time ago. Mary may have lived in the distant past, but let me tell you something. Mary was no fool. She knew how babies were made. And nothing of what the angel was saying to her made any sense whatsoever. And so the angel had to go on and explain it to her. You'll find the explanation in Luke chapter 1. And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And then two verses later, the angel adds this tagline, For nothing shall be impossible with God. Well, there it is. See, if this universe is not all there is, if there is a God out there who created all things, well, then it's true. Nothing is impossible with him. Even a young girl can conceive a child. Now, it's true. If you come to this event... If you come to the virgin birth, or for that matter, to any of the miraculous events described in the Bible, like Carl Sagan, if you come with an a priori commitment to naturalism, if you are convinced that the universe is a closed system and there's nothing else out there, well then let me tell you, no amount of evidence that anybody is going to present is going to persuade you otherwise. You know, some people's minds are just like cement, all mixed up and permanently set. C.S. Lewis made this point in his book, Miracles. He said, I have known only one person in my life who claimed to have seen a ghost. It was a woman. And the interesting thing is that she disbelieved in the immortality of the soul before seeing the ghost and still disbelieves after having seen it. She thinks it was a hallucination. Lewis goes on, this is the first thing to get clear in talking about miracles. Whatever experiences we may have, we shall not regard them as miraculous if we already hold to a philosophy, a worldview, which excludes the supernatural. Lewis's point is well taken, isn't it? If you come to this event already convinced that miracles cannot take place, well then even if you were to witness one, say the parting of the Red Sea or the raising of someone from the dead or a virgin birth, you still wouldn't believe it. You might scratch your head and say, well, I don't know how that happened, but there must be a natural explanation. But on the other hand, if you come with an open mind, if you come doing what the Apostle Paul encourages us to do in Romans chapter 1, that is to consider the evidence, the evidence that God has made known in nature, in creation. If you consider the fine-tuning of the universe, the complexity of the human body, 
the laws that govern nature, then you will come away with the impression that no, this world is not all there is. There is someone out there. And if that is true, well then let's face it, all things are possible. And my friends, that should be a great encouragement to you and to me. Because as I said, we live in a world in which there are sorrows and frustrations and difficulties and challenges. And sometimes we cannot see the way forward. Mary didn't always see the way forward. Again, she said, how can this be? But because of the virgin birth, the angel's words to her are the angel's words to us. Fear not, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. So that's the first reason why the doctrine of the virgin birth has value and significance for your life and for mine, because whatever you're facing this morning, whatever challenges you're up against, whatever difficulties lie before you, Nothing shall be impossible with God. But here's the second reason why the doctrine of the virgin birth is of practical value for your life and for mine. It's because it reminds us that God is the great promise keeper. That God always, no matter what, stands by his word. And that's important for us because, let's face it, we are living in a time when that is not true of men and women. We live in an age in which contracts are broken, promises are shattered, and vows are easily discarded. This is why we're in such a litigious society. This is why the legal profession is so lucrative. Now, don't get the wrong impression. I'm not trying to beat up on the lawyers here this morning. Some of my best friends are lawyers. My eldest son is a lawyer. But let's face it. If everybody kept their promises, if everybody kept their word, there wouldn't be very much for the lawyers to do. But of course, the problem is that people don't keep their word, do they? They don't keep their promises. And the result is that you and I live in an age of distrust and wariness. But that is not the way it is with God. God always keeps his promises. The psalmist says, forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. Now let me just say that in order for you to understand this next point that I'm going to make about God's faithfulness, you are going to have to pay close attention. Because quite frankly, this is a bit of a mind bender. So are you with me? 1,000 years before Jesus Christ was ever born in Bethlehem of Judea, over 1,000 years before he ever appeared on the scene, God made a promise to King David that one of his heirs, one of his blood descendants, would eventually sit on the throne and reign over the nation and establish a kingdom without end. And from that time on, the Jewish people looked forward with great anticipation to the coming of this long-promised, long-anticipated Davidic Messiah. 
But everybody also recognized that there was a potential problem. A problem that made the fulfillment of that promise, at least from a worldly, earthly point of view, impossible. And the problem had to do with one of King David's heirs. You see, when King David died, his son Solomon ascended the throne. And for several generations thereafter, it was the descendants of David through the line of Solomon that reigned over the nation. Until you get to about the 6th century B.C. And a king by the name of Jehoiakim, who the Bible says did evil in the sight of the Lord. He introduced all kinds of pagan practices to the people of God. And the result was that he was cursed by God. And the curse makes for some very interesting reading. It can be found in Jeremiah chapter 22. It says, record this man childless, a man who will not prosper in his own lifetime, and none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Now what that curse meant was that no one from that line of David through Solomon, even though they were related to David, and even though they were the legal line sitting upon the throne, none of them would ever again be able to claim legitimacy. The Messiah could not come from that line because he would be cursed. And yet, there was another line of descent from King David. And that line came from one of his other sons, Solomon's older brother, Nathan. And the descendants in this line were also of royal blood. They were the true children of David. They were of a royal line, but the problem was this, they never sat on the throne, so they were not the legal line. And that was the problem. Everybody knew when the Messiah came, he had to be accepted by all. And they knew that because of this curse on the line, whenever the Messiah came, someone, whichever line he came from, was going to accuse him of being illegitimate. Either because he came from the legal line of Solomon, but that line was cursed, or because he came from the royal line, but the line that had never actually sat upon the throne. And the question was this, how was God going to resolve the dilemma? Because everybody, again, knew that the Messiah had to be accepted by all. Well, God did it in a way that continues to baffle cynics and skeptics even to this day. He did it through the miracle of the virgin birth. You see, the Bible records, Matthew chapter 1, that that line of Solomon ran on down through the centuries, past wicked Jehoiakim, down to the first century, until it eventually produced a man named Joseph who was of the line and lineage of David, who was espoused to a young girl named Mary, but who knew her not until she had brought forth her firstborn son. And what that means is that when Joseph took Mary as his wife, he adopted Jesus. And in adopting him, according to Jewish law, passed on all the rights and honors of his line and his lineage to his adopted son. Which meant that Jesus could lay claim to that legal line without having received the curse. 
Now, somebody might say, well, that's very interesting, but God made a promise to David that it would be one of David's blood heirs that would be the true Messiah, and not simply an adopted heir. Well, what's interesting is that God thought of even that. Because, as I said, there was another line of descent, and that genealogy is recorded in Luke chapter 3. And it tells us that that line through Nathan ran down through the centuries until the first century arrived, and it produced a young woman by the name of Mary. That's right, both Joseph and Mary were descendants of King David, but through two separate lines. And when Mary conceived a child, not by Joseph, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, she passed on to her son her bloodline. She had David's blood coursing through her veins, and her son had her blood coursing through his veins. So Jesus was a legitimate heir of King David, but because he was the adopted son of Joseph, he could lay claim to the legal as well as the royal lines without the curse, thereby exhausting all other claims to the throne of David. Because you see, Jesus never had any other children of his own. And the only other claimants to the throne would be his half-brothers by Mary and Joseph, but they could not lay claim because they were the progeny of Joseph and therefore had the curse on them. Only Jesus could do it, exhausting all other claims. Now, who but God can think of that? It boggles the mind. It boggles the mind that God made a promise to King David over a thousand years before, and despite the wickedness of men, despite the passage of time, what appeared to be insurmountable obstacles, in spite of biology itself, God moved heaven and earth to keep his word. An unshakable, unbreakable promise. And that should be a great encouragement to you and to me. Because when God makes a promise to us, he will never, ever, no matter what anybody else does, God will never break his word. When he says, whoever believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life, he means it. When he says, I will be with you always, even unto the ends of the earth, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, he means it. When he says, nothing shall separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth, neither angels nor principalities, neither things present nor things to come, nothing in all of creation, he means it. When he says, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again, that where I am, there you may be also, he means it. And when he says, all that the Father has given me shall come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will in no way cast out brothers and sisters he means it. And the virgin birth is a powerful testimony to this truth that God will never break his word. So let me suggest to you one final reason why the doctrine of the virgin birth is of value and significance for your life. Yes, it reminds us that God can do all things and nothing is impossible for him Yes, it reminds us that God will never break his word, but it also reminds us of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as our Savior. 
You know, it's interesting to note that Jesus' earthly life was bracketed by two miraculous events. You have the virgin birth on the front end, and you have his ascension on the back end. Jesus Christ came into this life in a most unusual way, and he departed this world and this life in a most unusual way, as if God was highlighting this life and saying, this is one you don't want to miss. And that's exactly what today's gospel lesson is all about with Joseph and this encounter with the angel. We don't think very much about Joseph, do we? About the plight of Joseph. We talk a lot about Mary and the challenges and difficulties that she faced as a young unwed mother in first century Palestine, and rightly so. But what about poor Joseph? I can barely read this story without my heart breaking for Joseph. The scripture says he was a righteous man. That is to say he was a good man. He was a decent man. But he was also a deeply wounded and heartbroken man. He loved Mary. And he had been faithful to her. But her unexpected pregnancy had sent him reeling. He could not understand what had gone wrong. He couldn't understand how the trust had been broken. He understood that trust is the foundation for every meaningful relationship, and it appeared to him that Mary had broken that trust. And he knew he couldn't go forward with the marriage. But at the same time, he was a good man. He didn't want to expose her to public ridicule, to banishment, to shame, or worse yet, maybe even to stoning. So we're told he tried to do the noble thing. He tried to break off the relationship, divorce her quietly. Until. Until, that is, an angel of the Lord appeared to him as an angel had appeared to his fiancée just a few months before. And all of a sudden, the magnificence and the majesty of this event began to dawn on Joseph. Look at verse 20 in today's reading. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." The angel draws a direct line between the Lord's miraculous conception and his role as Savior. She will conceive a child by the Holy Ghost, and you are to give him the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The angel was telling Joseph that the baby who was to be born was going to grow to be a man, but he would be no mere man. He would be the unique God-man, son of Mary, and yet at the same time, son of God, the Holy Spirit. And it would be in that unique role as the God-man that 33 years later, those little hands that were reaching out for a mother's loving touch in that cold Palestinian night would be stretched out on the hard wood of the cross that all might come within the reach of his saving embrace. 
As a man, Jesus Christ would pay the price that only man deserved to pay, but then as God rise triumphant from the grave, trampling down sin and death forevermore, saving his people from their sins. Hallelujah. And so we ask the question, does the virgin birth have any value or significance for my life? You better believe it does. It reminds us that in this world filled with sorrow and disappointment, nothing shall be impossible with God. It reminds us in this culture of broken promises and shattered dreams that God always keeps his word. And it reminds us that there has come among us one who is both the Son of Man and the Son of God, the unique Savior of the world. And the only question is this, is he your Savior today? In less than a week, we are going to gather here in this church. The lights will be out, we'll be on our knees, we'll have candles in our hands, the whole sanctuary lit by candlelight. And we will sing the words of that old carol, Silent Night, Holy Night. And as we do, let us bask in the mystery. And let us give thanks to God for this great Christmas gift and for this marvelous miracle of the virgin birth. Amen.